Well, good morning, Ozark Christian College. It is good to be with you this morning. I am so excited about what we get to talk about. But what is so funny is, is that this is like my third time to ever get to preach in chapel here at Ozark. And I figured after number two, this school would never have me back. But they asked me and here I am and lo and behold, President Proctor canceled school on me. So, uh, you know, that's kind of harsh. It's a harsh way to, to treat a guy when he comes in to, to speak to the college. But I'm so excited uh, about this opportunity to share with you. Before I even get into anything, I want to I want to spend some time trying to encourage you about some things because I, I remember my life in college and I know you're so much better than I am, but I could, I could, I could just imagine myself right now, you know, at home trying to uh, social distance myself, okay? Social distance. They don't go together for me. They really don't because I'm a social person. You know, I, I have said and, and have even probably shared on Facebook that this no hug thing is about to kill me. Uh, when I see people, you know, I, I immediately want to reach out. I want to hug them. And then, and then, you know, if there is the order, and I know a lot of people are saying, you need to stay inside. You see, to me, to stay inside is a punishment. I mean, that, that is outright punishment. If I did something wrong, my mom said, you cannot go outside for the afternoon. And then she would make me sit by the window and watch all of my buddies do everything that we did every afternoon. And I would promise profusely to my mom, I would never do that again. So I might understand some of you, some of you claim to be introverts and so you are living in heaven right now. So, uh, you know, we, we can learn to at least understand each other just a little bit. But my second part of encouragement would be this right here, please, through all this that's going on. One of the worst things that could happen to us because you are the leaders of the church and, and you, need to never lose focus on what God is doing. You see, God in all that he is doing through all or whatever we call this, God still has a plan and God is working his plan. Now, I certainly, along with every person I talk to and I imagine you, I never imagined anything like this. I have lived through a lot of things in my life, but I never imagined this. I imagined wars and I imagined other problems, but not something like this. So what I wanna encourage you about is that you have to stay focused on God. You've got to stay in the word of God. Now, I often try to warn and, and encourage a lot of the guys in my life group that I help with here. The first thing we talk about is never make the word of God a textbook. And that's kind of hard here because I understand we've got to know the word of God. It's what we use, it's what we study. But please, at this time, even in what you're doing and good luck with your studies, I hope that you'll stick with them. You'll be focused, you'll be disciplined. But remember, the word of God is not our textbook. It is our word of life. Now, when Isaac asked me to come here and to be able to do this a few months ago, uh, I, I was really excited. Now, and what he gave me was he gave me, as a, a good guy signing people up like that, is he gave me a couple of different dates and themes. And so, you know, when I looked at those dates, I looked at the one that was the closest to the time he talked to me and the one that was the farthest away from when he had asked me to come. And of course, like the student that I am, I chose the one as far away as I could possibly get. And then, but to look at it, that theme of this day is worship. Worship. I mean, there is nothing greater that we could talk about in its simplest form. You see, I wanted to make it simplest for myself. In its simplest form, worship is just my total surrender and my total submission to my Lord and my God, to Jesus Christ. That is worship. 
But I know we've got to get in deeper and, and farther into what it is because you're going to carry on from this day forward and out into the world, whatever your profession is, whatever you do in the church, you're going to have to be centered and focused on worship. Now, when I started here at Ozark Christian College in the mid-1970s, you see that was the beginning of some real shifts and changes in what we did as worship. And so I got to set in on debates and listen to debates of older professors and younger professors. Youth ministry that I was involved in for so many years was just really birthing. And, and I was fortunate to be in on some of those churches that we were the first youth ministers that they ever had. And so we were introducing to the teenagers and to children these new forms of worship that we were bringing in. And so I was here in the middle of all of that to listen to all of that. But I had come from a, a very traditional church setting. My dad was a pastor, he was a very passionate man and he could sing well. And so oftentimes my dad would be asked to come to a revival, not as the preacher, but as the song leader. And even in our own church, he was the worship leader and he did such a great job because he was so passionate. He would lead with a piano and he'd walk around with a hymn book and, and, and get people involved in worship, which I found so normal. And then where we lived, we lived in Mississippi. And so I got to go to quite a few black churches and experience worship to me in a whole new light there. And then I married into a family that was Pentecostal. So I got to be introduced to all of that. But yet I realized through everything that I was learning and seeing and the changes that we were making was that we were really fighting and we've called them the worship wars. We were really fighting about the wrong things. You see, we were fighting about methods and volumes. We were fighting about new songs, you know, contemporary against traditional. And we were losing a battle of the hearts of people. The hearts of what people need and what we gain through worship. In Ecclesiastes, the third chapter, in verse 11, the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us that God has placed eternity into the hearts of people. I believe, now I'm no scholar, so I'm sure that maybe many professors in notes today will be telling you don't listen to the odd guy, the, the ex-youth minister. But you see, when I think about God placing eternity in my heart, I believe he placed in me the desire to worship. I see it in all mankind. I see it in, in every child. We want to worship something we, we want something in our lives so desperately that, well, we'll hurt other people for it. We will work long hours for it. We will betray for it. Because you see, in reality, we worship. Now, to get into the word in just a few areas, one of my favorite stories in the, in the New Testament is found in John, the fourth chapter, where Jesus, even himself in his day and time, encounters a worship war. Now, what I love about this story is in the, in the fourth verse of this chapter where it says there that he, speaking of Jesus, had to go through Samaria on the way. On the way, he had to go through, you know, we all know. I mean, any of us, if you've studied very much, if you've heard very many sermons, you, no, he didn't. No, he did not have to go through Samaria. He could have been a good Jew. He could have crossed the Jordan River somewhere uh, where it would be easy to cross, go up the east side and go around the Sea of Galilee or someplace in the north to cut across back over to Galilee and never have to touch foot in Samaria. But you know, Jesus knew. Jesus knew there was a reason to be in Samaria. 
We've been studying the book of Luke, and I, and I can't help myself in reading in through the other gospels that over and over again, we are confronted with the fact that Jesus knew what someone was thinking. Jesus knew what they were talking about. Jesus knew what the disciples behind him were arguing about. You see, Jesus knows. And he knew that day there was an encounter near a well that he had to be at. When they arrived there and they got to the well, I'm sure as they were walking, Jesus, as he often is, his eyes were set his gait was strong. He was heading somewhere. He had an appointment to be there. He had to get there. I can imagine his disciples following around behind him. You know, their heads are on a swivel looking around to make sure nobody might see them. And then when they get to the well that Jacob had dug, he sits down. He's weary. He's tired. And the disciples themselves have to go into Sychar to get food. But you see, Jesus had an appointment. And pretty soon here she came. We call her the woman at the well. And when she got there, Jesus, weary and tired and thirsty, asked her for a drink of water. You see, Jesus was going to do what we need to realize we must do. He began to break down barriers, and those barriers were of gender, they were of race. We're going to see him break the, the barrier of religion, and he's going to break the barrier of sin. Well, she looks at him, and she begins to question him in those early verses that we won't read about, you know, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. Why are you even talking to me? And he tells her, lady, if you knew, if you knew who I, who I was, you would be asking me for water. So he's piqued her interest because she says to him, well, you don't have a rope. You don't even have a bucket. But he has her. He's broken down the barriers to where she wants to listen. You see, I say all of this to get us somewhere because eventually breaking down race and gender and religion, he gets her to sin. Go call your husband. Well, I... I don't have a husband, she says. And he says, you're right. As a matter of fact, you've had five husbands and the man you live with now is not your husband. It's then when Jesus broke through sin that she wants to know about worship. She says to this, in the, the uh, uh, 19th verse, excuse me, uh, yeah, the 19th verse. You must be a prophet, she said. So tell me. Why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped? You see, sin had been revealed in her life and once sin is revealed, worship takes over. That's why we all come to the worship setting. We come and we're looking and waiting for God to speak through us through the, the tune of a song, through the words through the message and watching the leaders, we all come and invariably each and every one of us will remind God that we're sinners and we're so thankful for his redemption. Many of us asking for his forgiveness because you see, once sin is broken, worship takes place. Well, Jesus has an answer for it. He replied to her in the next couple of verses. He says, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or whether you worship him in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship while we Jews know all about him for salvation comes through the Jews. He's pointing out, you see, you see, lady, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you know, you know very little. It doesn't matter what the Jews know, they know a lot. It doesn't matter about the lights, it doesn't matter about the volume, it doesn't matter about the sound. You see, he's going to get to the heart of the matter. 
in which he says next, but the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. You see, friends, God is looking for true worshipers. And as we lead in churches, he knows and we must realize that the body of Jesus Christ needs true worship in spirit and in truth. We need to come to God with not so much of what we do, but how we come to him in spirit and in truth. And so in this chapter and in these verses, this woman is confronted until finally in the 24th verse, she says this. She says, I know the Messiah is coming and he will be called the Christ. She makes a statement, but within the statement, she's asking a question. And here, one of the few times in the gospels, Jesus says these words, I am the Messiah. You see, worship brings us to the point where we stand before God. We stand before God open. We stand before God broken, asking for him to take over in our lives. Worship in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The first time we really see the word talked about in worship is in Genesis, the 18th chapter in the second verse. We read about Abraham. It says, when he saw them, and he's speaking of the angels of God, he ran to meet them. He welcomed them, bowing low to the ground. The most used Old Testament word is just that right there. Worship is bowing low to the ground. The New Testament word, also the most used one on worship, depicts and paints that same picture for us. That when we worship, we humble ourselves in such a way that not just to bow to our knees, but to fall upon our faces before our God. That our worship, that we, again, we totally surrender, we totally submit ourselves to God. Those words, those words are the actions, those words are the attitude that we need. We need to teach them, we need to live them. You see, but our problem stems even from the Garden of Eden. You see, even from there, it was the trick and the lie of Satan to turn worship away from God by Adam and Eve to themselves. Where suddenly they think of themselves as the center of the universe. And our problem with worship today is exactly that. You see, we've taken this attitude, we've taken this posture and we've turned it into ourselves. We begin to worship sexuality, money, professions, our own reputation. And some of us will worship, worship. We worship, worship. When in reality, what God has created for all of us, that eternity within our hearts is to worship only him. As we go out into the church world, as we live right now, what we are going through, we must realize that our worship has to be totally submitted and surrendered to the will and to the way of God. I wrote down some true worship things for myself to share with you. You see, true worship is not unexpressed feelings. No, true worship 
is expressing my feelings to God, my love to God. Oh, you know what? Uh, with my wife, I, I, we, we're very expression people. Our family, we, we express a lot of feelings. Our, our family, all of our children, our huggers, all of our children express love. We're not afraid to look at each other and say, I love you. We taught our children, don't ever say it and don't mean it. When I express my love towards my wife, I want her to know that it is so heartfelt that she will not feel ever betrayed. She'll not feel ever unloved because I want to express to her my love and my feelings. True worship, true worship is not cheap entertainment. You see, and I know that's what many people in the church are worried about, but we need to realize that worship costs something. Worship costs something. It's cost us something. It cost Isaiah something when he found himself in the temple before God. It cost him his own purpose to turn his life over to God and to follow the purpose of God. It cost David something. It cost him his reputation. It cost the apostle Paul his life. You see, true worship is not cheap. True worship is not an escape. Oh, you know, I know that oftentimes we want to come into worship and try to get away from the things of the world. But true worship is coming and letting God have control of our lives. And not looking for an escape, but looking for God to use us. Looking for God to revitalize us, to give us back the energy that the world has taken away from us. It's not a time to escape. It's a time to come together in a corporate worship area, whether here or somewhere in the world, to break out in praise to God because he is in control no matter what this world is doing today and in the future. The problem we have with worship today is that we have so little sacrifice. When Jesus Christ told his disciples that if they wanted to follow him, he laid down the plan of sacrifice, to take up your cross, to deny yourself and to take up your cross and to follow him. You see, those are the actions of true worship. And we cannot downplay it. The apostle Paul in Romans, the 12th chapter, that beautiful first verse that we oftentimes read, he said, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them, your bodies, be a living and holy sacrifice. The kind he, God, will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Living sacrifices, to get on that altar and to serve God. A.W. Tozer says this, for the Christian, everything begins and ends with worship. Whatever interferes with one's personal worship of God needs to be properly dealt with and dismissed. Keep in mind that above all else, worship is an attitude, a state of mind, and a sustained act. It's not a physical attitude, but it's an inward act of the heart towards God. Now I have a few moments left. And as I thought about worship, you know, one of those great stories of the Old Testament that I love, I love to tell it. And I know you know it, 2 Chronicles, the 20th chapter. Jehoshaphat finds out that there are three armies, much mightier than his, only a few days away. He has no time to prepare. Now he's already learned his lesson once. If you go back to the 17th and the 18th chapters, Jehoshaphat learned a great lesson there when he, when he went along with and he joined forces with Ahab. 
And although he even in that encounter called for the word of God, but he didn't listen. So this time, now when he's faced with an enemy that he knows he cannot defeat, he goes to God. I love in verse three and four of that chapters of those chapters of what he says. And I know we don't have enough time to really preach about it, but I love what he said. He's terrified by the news and he begged the Lord for guidance. We can read on down through here and all the things that Jehoshaphat did, but the final thing that he did, in that final moment when they've been promised that if they would just believe, he tells the people, if you'll just believe, if you'll just believe, this battle is ours. And so when they started the march, he placed the worshipers in front. He placed the people to lead them in worship. And when the voices of God's people were lifted up, the enemy, right then, was defeated. You see, friends, people of the church, we need worship has got to be, has got to be more than just a thing we do. It must be a priority of our daily lives. Now, let me close with a story. I wanted to also think about preaching from Acts, the 16th chapter, which is another loved chapter of mine in a situation for Paul and Silas. If you'll remember there, they cast out the demon from a young lady that is telling the future or fortune telling. And they're arrested. They're tried illegally and too quickly. They're beaten and it says thrown into the inner dungeon. But in the 25th verse of that 16th chapter, it says there it was about midnight and they have been beaten and their feet have been put in stocks. At about midnight, they began to sing hymns and pray to God. But here's what I love, what it says. And the prisoners were listening to them. Now, many years ago, the story is that we'd gone to, my first wife and I had gone to a 4th of July celebration and I I was taken back as I am every year to 4th of July and the fireworks, I love them, but I began to tell her to look around. You see, that's how we should be. We should be exploding with power upon this world. Well, we went home and we researched and we found, we went and found the Acts of 16 chapter, which we knew, we'd studied here. We knew the chapter, we read it. We looked at each other and we sang praises that night after the children were gone to bed of the power of God that we wanted in our lives. Little did both of us know we'd be tested so soon. It wasn't long after that, that my wife was uh, diagnosed with cancer, stage four cancer. We were sent to KU Medical Center up in uh, Kansas City, Kansas. They were doing exploratory surgery on her and we went in very early in the morning and I sat in a waiting room with other people that their loved ones were having surgery and as I sat there waiting, the waiting room emptied out to where finally it was only me. Finally, the surgeon stepped into the room and he motioned for me to come with him and we walked down a small hallway. In the first room on the left, we went into and there was a simple desk, a lamp on the desk and on the wall was the light for the x-rays and we sat down. And he looked at me and he said, Mr. Sigers, it's far worse than I thought. You see, when we got in there, we realized there was nothing we could do. And so then for the next few moments, he explained all the procedures that was going to go on. And I, I listened, but I couldn't hear. I didn't understand until finally I, I asked, what's, what are the chances? What, what's going to happen? And he explained again. And I listened, but I could not hear. So finally, he got ready to get done and he pushed away and he called me by my name, Robin. He said, Robin, you need to understand some things are gonna happen here in the next six months. Number one, in the next six months, your wife is going to die of cancer. 
that's, that's a shock. He said, number two, with the things that we're going to do to your wife, we're going to heal her of cancer in the next six months. Or number three, with those things we are going to do to her, Robin, I and my staff personally are going to kill your wife. And then he pushed away from the table and he looked at me and he said, Robin, I don't see any chance for her to live. And he walked out of that room. I try to tell this story a couple times a year so I'll never forget. When we walked out, young people, I sat there in that room and I hated God. I looked at the ceiling of that room in that medical center and I pointed to that ceiling and I told God I hated him, that I would never serve him. I would never do what he asked me to do. We, we had five children. Our youngest was five months old. I asked him what he was thinking. Why would he do this to me? I don't deserve this. Look what I do for you. And then before I left the room, I told him, I will never serve you again. Well, that was on a Wednesday and the doctors had promised Diane that on Sunday, she'd be able to go home if everything was right. And of course she was, except for the cancer, very healthy. So Sunday morning, the doctors came in and the doctor said, you can go home. And so we made the phone calls and people were coming to pick us up. And it was about 1030 in the morning and she'd gotten dressed. We were waiting and she raised the bed up and she looked at me while I sat over there, silent as I had been for the past few days. And she said to me, Robin, we need to do communion. The church back home's doing communion. We need to do communion. And I, I was mad. I didn't want to do communion. I didn't want to come to God like that. And so I, I looked at her. I stood up from my chair and I said, Diane, we're, we're not going to do communion. And then she looked at me and she said, hey, we're going to do communion. And I said, all right. So I walked out of that room. I, I went out to the nurse's station and there was a few people in the hospital on a Sunday morning and those nurses had been with us a lot that week and I, I simply asked for a, a muffin and a can of grape soda and a couple of cups and they knew exactly what I was doing and what I needed and they brought them to me. And I went into a room and I got the little table and I moved it over in front of her and I broke open this muffin and I took a can of grape soda and I poured a little bit for her like, like you know, we do. And then I poured a whole big cup for me. She looked at me and I said, you know, I've been going to church for all these years and got the little cups. I want a big cup. She didn't pay any attention. And, and then I was thinking, I immediately thought, I've got to pray. Somebody's got to pray here. How am I going to pray to God that I hate? And then she said, Robin, we need to sing. I said, we're, we, we can't sing. We're in a hospital. I mean, we, we can't sing in a hospital. And she looked at me and she said, hey, we're going to sing. And I looked at her and I said, hey, all right. Well, we'd grown up in church, both of us. And so we started singing hymns and then we, we sang and she would sing with Jeff Moody at CIY as a background singer. And so we sang all those songs and I, we must have sang for 30 or 40 minutes. And, and then I, I will never forget, I sang it on the way here today. I'll never forget the last song we sang. It, it was something that Jeff would do over and over again and it went like this. I will not be ashamed of you, Father. I will not be ashamed of you, Lord. I will not be ashamed of you, Spirit. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to worship you. Blow in, blow. Burn, fire, burn. 
We sang it over and over and over. And when we were done, I, I prayed, I asked God to forgive me and that, that I prayed for healing for my wife and I was so thankful for the blood of Jesus who frees us from all of my sin. And then we said amen and we took the muffin and drank the juice and I backed away to lean against the wall, I was exhausted. And when I backed away, have you ever been in that situation where you know there's somebody, another presence in the room with you? And you see, the reason I say this is because I remember I told you that when Paul and Silas were singing and praying hymns, that the prisoners were listening to them. You see, in the story of Paul and Silas, Paul was filled with conviction of who Jesus was. And I know you're a convicted person. I know that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that no matter what is going on in this world, you know Jesus is Lord. But he had courage. He had courage to do something, to heal someone and to stand up for the message of Jesus Christ and the power of Jesus when no one else would do it. And my challenge is that you would do that, but the only way that your conviction and courage can make a difference in the world is when you celebrate, when you worship, when you have had your backs beaten by the world and maybe even the church. When you are laid open and bare and your feet are put in stocks, you see with your feet in stocks, you can only look one of two directions. You either fall over on your face in the dirt and the muck and the mire of the world and you give up like I did. Or you lay on your back bruised and broken, beaten down and when you do, you can only look one direction and that's to heaven. <laughs> when you look to heaven, you worship. When I opened my eyes, because I felt the presence of someone else, I looked over and there in the doorway were those two nurses. They were standing there and they were holding hands. Heads bowed and obviously tears. And I moved away from the wall. I went back to the bed and I sat down and I just simply held the hands of that woman because I realized that I was in the presence of God, not because of anything of me. I was the sinner needing forgiveness. I was in the midst of someone that was convicted, that had courage and was willing to celebrate even in the darkness. And the prisoners, they'll listen. And the church, if the church is gonna make an impact in this world in 2020 with a virus, and with all the other things that are going around, we need a church that will worship. A church that will bring more than voices, more than new words. They'll bring hearts broken before God to let him fill them. And I guarantee you, the prisoners will listen. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, I am so thankful so thankful for this school and what I know the heart of this school is, is to teach, to raise up men and women that will teach and preach the word of God and that will live it out. That there are young leaders right now listening that you have already designed a path for them to take, Father God, in which they will lead people in worship. Help them to understand those people will be broken. They will be bruised. They will be in a people that would have given up God but they need to hear your message through these 
young people. They need to hear the gospel. They need to witness the worship God of these people. So right now, God, with all that's going on, I ask you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth to bind all of this. And Father God, we could rise up as a school to leave here and to go back out into that social gathering. And by our daily lives and every moment of our lives, we live in worship. Give them the strength and the courage when they are beaten down to look to heaven and to worship. God, help the prisoners hear them. Father God, these things I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.